0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with new intelligence on the origins of the coronavirus pandemic that has the Department of Energy stating that they have low confidence that the pandemic was caused by a lab leak, joining with the FBI who have concluded with moderate confidence that the virus emerged from an accident at China's Wuhan Institute of Virology. Joining us is Dr. Stanley Perlman, a professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Iowa, who has studied coronavirus pathogenesis for four decades. We will discuss how difficult it has been to establish the truth about the origins of COVID-19 because the Chinese government from the beginning have stonewalled, and by cleaning and disinfecting the Wuhan seafood market, where it is suspected the virus made a zoonotic leap from animals to humans, evidence for the most likely theory was lost. Then we'll look into the violent rampage by settlers destroying and burning Palestinian homes and cars on the West Bank to avenge the deaths of two settlers shot by a Palestinian gunman on Sunday and the agreement between Jordanian and Israeli officials to halt settlements over the weekend that was immediately shot down by the new far-right finance minister in charge of Israel's West Bank policy. Joining us is Khaled El-Gindi, Senior Fellow at the Middle East Institute, where he directs the program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli affairs. He previously served as an advisor to the Palestinian leadership on permanent status negotiations with Israel from 2004 to 2009, and was a key participant in the Annapolis negotiations launched in November of 2007. His latest book is *Blind Spot: America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. Then finally we'll assess the so-called Windsor framework worked out between UK's Prime Minister Sunak and the EU's Ursula von der Leyen on Northern Ireland trade, which could be the beginning of a reset of relations between the UK and the EU following the Brexit debacle that continues to paralyze Britain's economy and its politics. Joining us from the UK is Patrick Allen, the founder and chair of the Progressive Economic Forum a progressive think tank that supports the almost 50% of UK citizens who voted against Brexit in the first place. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking to the violent rampage by settlers destroying and burning Palestinian homes and cars on the West Bank to avenge the deaths of two settlers shot by a Palestinian gunman. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back assessing the so-called Windsor framework worked out between UK's Prime Minister Sunak and the EU's Ursula von der Leyen on Northern Ireland trade, which could be the beginning of a reset of relations between the UK and the EU following the Brexit debacle that continues to paralyze Britain's economy and politics. And joining us now is Dr. Stanley Perlman, a professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Iowa, who has studied coronavirus pathogenesis for four decades. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Stanley Perlman.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, now that the Department of Energy has joined with the FBI to say that the coronavirus pandemic is the result of a lab accident in Wuhan, China, it's not consensus uh, amongst the other, other intelligence agencies that are looking at it, but how, how does it strike you?
1: I think that there is a subtle change here. Uh, so I agree it's also not a uh, huge change, and I don't know the basis for it. I don't think anyone else does quite either. We are told that there's new information that's changed the shift, but um, I don't think we um, know yet what that information is. To put this into context, In in the beginning, um, there was questions about um, uh, whether this virus could have been created in the lab. I think that's off the table. So now the question is whether the virus was in the lab and was released accidentally or something like that uh, later uh, uh, during the course of 2020 or 2019. And so the, the conversation has changed and it was always trickier to rule out having the virus in the lab and having it just, uh, as it were, leak by accident from the lab or somebody who was ill walking out with it. That's always hard to prove. Uh, but there's no evidence that the virus was in the lab. Uh, and there, there, but on the other hand, there's no uh, pe- people are not satisfied with the way that question has been addressed in China. So looking for a complete absence of a virus in a huge laboratory uh, may be challenging, but it hasn't really been addressed. So that would be the piece of information that one would want, but I personally think it's going to be very hard to obtain and it's also going to be very hard to convince people who think there was a lab leak that the absence of this information was proof that there wasn't one. So I think it's changed things modestly, certainly having two of the agencies in the U.S. intelligence community changing their opinion is important and may change. Um, it, it gives more credence to the idea that this part of the possible spread to humans needs to be further investigated.
0: Well, the four other intelligence agency and the National Intelligence Council, they concluded with low confidence that the virus was most likely came from natural transmissions and that was announced back in october of 2021 so this new intelligence jake sullivan the national security advisor declined to confirm what this intelligence was and i guess we're all in the dark as far as that goes right what's changed the minds of the the doa is in the mix because of the national laboratories right yes yeah,
1: so that's yeah. So we don't know what changed the mix. It's, you know, as I said, as you just said, it's really unclear what has changed. And the, the other thing to point out is that all these estimations are done with low, prop, low assurance. So the no one's very uh, definitive about where uh, which side of the story is correct, whether it's a lab leak or animal leak. Certainly, I think from. Uh, the data point of view, most of the data supports an animal leak because there were some nice studies that have just come out in the last few months that suggest the virus was in animals and the, where the virus was found in the Wuhan market was around where the animals were. So it's all uh, it, it's the, the firmest data is for that, but uh, nothing's conclusive and no one's ever found the virus in those animals. No one's ever found the original SARS-CoV-2 in any animal. So that's why the confidence levels are low.
0: Well, the Republicans, of course, on Capitol Hill are are making hay about this. And it's in the context of a growing antipathy towards China, concerns that China may start arming Russia in its war in Ukraine. And, of course, the Chinese just put forth a 12-point peace proposal. So I guess we can expect this to get more and more political, right?
1: Yeah, so I think it was going to get political anyway, and this just uh, adds some more fuel to the fire, I think. So I think that I think there's going to be uh, people who test the the people will be called to testify before Congress. And uh, there'll be a a, I suspect a variety of opinions. And what one would hope is that it was that whatever occurs will be done seriously and with respect for really looking for the truth rather than uh, grandstanding. That's what one has to hope.
0: Well, unfortunately, from day one, the Chinese authorities really just sort of hunkered down and there was never an international investigation. It was originally suggested by Australia and China, rather than go along with any kind of international investigation, reacted very, very strongly and cut off trading ties with Australia and banned a bunch of imports, etc. So they've been really hard-nosed about this. It's it's similar to the way that they behaved vis-a-vis this uh, balloon that's been referred to as a spy balloon. Still to this day we don't know exactly what that balloon was doing and what the instrumentation that was dangling underneath it was all about. But Presumably we'll find out something at some point. But that seems to be A part of the problem, isn't it, that from day one, China was never open and and transparent by any measure.
1: Yeah, that that, that was very unfortunate. The other point that I would make is that probably, to my mind as a scientist, the biggest problem, biggest error was when this was first noted. Uh, What China did is it closed the market and cleansed the market. And if one is really scared uh, about this thing, disease spreading, That's that seems like a reasonable course of action. But in retrospect, it prevented us from getting specimens of the animals that were in the market. And which may have had, if we had found the virus in those animals, this discussion would be different uh, now than we're having. But we have no information from those early days, except that we know that the virus was in the market and that there's a two, two different lineages. So to me, and that that was not necessarily China being uh, obfuscatory, if thats the right word—obfuscatory, but rather it was they're trying to be cautious about not having the virus around. Certainly, uh, there's another example in Korea when the MERS um, virus spread there in 2016. There's never been an autopsy from Korea because all the bodies were burned because people were worried about the virus. In fact, we've between there and the Arabian Peninsula, we have only two autopsies in 20 years of this, or not 20 years, 12, 11 years of this virus. So people can be cautious. But in this particular case, it really came back to bite us.
0: Well, now that the Department of Energy and the FBI have concluded, and they've concluded with moderate confidence that the virus first emerged accidentally from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Give me a sense, uh, Stanley, of the history of efforts to rule out the lab leak thesis.
1: Yeah, so I don't think, I think that in the beginning, the best we had was serology from people who worked at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which I don't think has been made public. I think we were told it was all negative. There was no uh, evidence that the that, and again, it's from the people who work in the laboratory there's no evidence that the virus was ever there, but these are would but these have never been substantiated, and they would be hard to be substantiated because somebody would have to go through all the notebooks and labs and and the lab materials be very hard to prove but um, that's, I think, where we stand. I may be missing something, but that's my understanding of where we stand with that. It's very hard to rule out.
0: But there's never been an international inspectors, right?
1: Right, but that's the point. If you, What would an international inspector do? So they'd have to go through every notebook and every test tube in a laboratory, and that would be a daunting task. In theory, uh, that might work, but... You're dealing with specimens that are frozen at minus 80 degrees Celsius. Um, it, it it would be hard to do. That would be the ideal way to uh, end this controversy. But as I said before, even if one found no evidence of the virus in 2023 going through those materials, I don't know that the argument would be settled.
0: So I think in early March, yeah, the... Uh, 8th and 9th of March is when the head of national intelligence Avril Haines, the DNI is supposed to testify as a part of the annual hearings on global threats so that's the soonest we're going to get any official word. All we've heard is that both the DOE and the FBI have sort of broken ranks with the rest of the intelligence community to to say that they have uh, moderate confidence in the fact that the coronavirus first emerged accidentally from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So that's it, right? We, we have to wait for...
1: Yeah, we have to wait for more. I thought that the level of confidence was not moderate. I thought it was less than that. I thought it was low confidence.
0: Uh-huh. Well, so, that, that's you know not what I'm seeing. On, on. Yeah, yeah.
1: Whatever the r- words are, what the words are. But I just... either I thought because moderate would mean that there's more data... Supporting it than I know about low. Well, I thought all the claims up to you now. Maybe the FBI was moderate, and all the others were low confidence that it was uh, naturally derived. Maybe that's where my confusion is.
0: Right. Well, it is a big deal. I mean, from the point of view of a scientist, surely you want to know, don't you, Stanley? Or how this thing began isn't that really important?
1: Yeah, yeah. know, I think from several points of view, one uh, would like to know where it began, I think it'd be very important for understanding the pattern of the pathway from which the virus got from presumptively bats all the way to people. So is this because it was because lab procedures were shoddy, or is it because animal procedures and taking care of in wet markets were shoddy? We know the latter is true, whether or not this came from the wet markets. We know they were not well regulated and not well controlled. So that's a given. Uh, I think at the end of all this, but I really want to see is measures in place so it doesn't happen again. That's really the most important thing. That's why we wanna know where it came from so we can do that in a reasonable way. And uh, the, the US has been, as you know, been addressing some of these issues with some new rules from the uh, national, uh, some, of the, some of the agencies that deal with, with biosafety. And so what, what's really critical is that we get things in the right place. So we have the right amount of uh, precautionary measures we have the right amount of security but we don't so hamper research that in the end uh, we leave ourselves open to uh, new problems so we have to, that's where I want to be
0: but so far from the beginning there has been little to no cooperation from the Chinese government and that's not likely to change this at Stanley given rising tensions this that's- seems to be adding fuel to the fire actually
1: yeah, no, absolutely. No, I, I agree that there's, there's there's not a way forward that seems to be involving the Chinese. That, and um, the, the WHO, which, which should have started off as a neutral arbiter, um, isn't uh, succeeding very well either.
0: Yeah, what happened with the World Health Organization? They, initially, they seemed to sort of just side with, with China's narrative, did they not?
1: Yeah, well, they, part of the problem is that Thus far, all the data that I know of support the animal view more strongly. Most of the data for the lab leak are, is more conjecture. That's why if there's really new data that the DOE has, that'll be interesting to see. Uh, because it's just up till now, it's been more uh, um, what I would consider uh, information that's then put into a picture of lab leak rather than anything that proves or is uh Proves a lab leak. I guess I should say data that's consistent with a lab leak, but not and, and nothing close to a proof and nothing nothing firm. Unlike the animal side, where there is some data that's confirmed, uh, but uh, doesn't but doesn't prove it either.
0: Well, apparently, at least according to the Wall Street Journal, that originally broke this story, the U.S. Department of Energy have concluded that the coronavirus. Behind this pandemic, most likely emerged from a laboratory leak, but not as part of a weapons program. So, when it first happened, people were looking at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and I recall that there were a number of reports suggesting that their level of biosafety was not up to snuff. Is that your recollection as well, Stanley?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that that's true. Uh, I don't, I think the uh, the issue was, and this is something we're still grappling with, so if one wants to figure out what viruses are in the wild and one has a, one has materials from a whole bunch of bats or a whole bunch of other animals, how do you analyze them? Well, in the BSL-3 laboratory, it's very cumbersome, and the vast, vast majority of samples you analyze are not going to have anything of interest in them. And if the same thing's true when people look for influenza, you know, where is it circulating in birds? How do you then... How do you balance between the fact that you need to do surveillance, but it's impractical to take thousands of samples and put them in the in the high security laboratories? So that's what the issue was uh, for a lot of the discussion we're having now Uh, in the in 20 uh, before 2020. There was also an issue that some of these samples were handled at the wrong level uh, in the uh, uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology. They were handled at the level that was probably acceptable at the time, but in retrospect, there's, uh, it's not clear that it was the, handled at the right level because they followed the rules. The, just the, our perception of the rules have also changed, and maybe the rules weren't as... The, I don't know if the rules in China at that time at the Wuhan Institute were the same as what we would have done in the U.S.
0: But in terms of the wet market, which is really quite near the uh, Wuhan Institute and that's, I guess, why the link was made in the first place. Is it still operating? Have they closed it down? Or, I mean, in China in general, are they still doing this kind of risky behavior, eating all kinds of weird animals that could well have been the reason why that this zoonotic leap happened in the first place?
1: Yeah, well, I think that the, they're still eating them. Where are they getting from is that's another question because a lot of them are farmed. And certainly during the SARS pandemic in 2003, uh, we knew that civic cats were important, so they were all uh, actually euthanized from farms, but no one ever found the virus in a farm civic cat. So uh, th- 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 what really needs is a clamp down on the wild trade, because that's where the virus is coming from. Animals in the wild that have been around bats that may be infected. Uh, that's, what, that's what needs to be stopped. China has at times talked about doing that. I don't know where we are now. If those markets exist anymore, and if they even if they don't, this, it's still such a lucrative trade. I, I'm worried that it's in, it's sub rosa now, so it's not in the market, but it's still occurring.
0: Well, Dr. Stanley Perlman, I thank you for joining us here today and filling us in on what this speculation about whether or not the coronavirus originated from a lab leak in the Wuhan Institute
1: of Virology. Yes, and I look forward to hearing what the DOE has to say as well.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Stanley Perlman, who's a professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Iowa, who has studied coronavirus pathogenesis for four decades. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Halad El-Gindi, who's a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute, where he directs the program on Palestinian and Palestinian-Israeli affairs. He previously served as an advisor to the Palestinian leadership on permanent status negotiations with Israel from 2004 to 2009. And was a key participant in the Annapolis negotiations launched in November of two thousand and seven, and his latest book is Blind Spot: America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. Welcome to background briefing El Elgindi.
2: Thanks for having me
0: well, thanks for joining us halled and then over the weekend, we saw the worst violence in Israel for some time where the Israeli settlers rampaged through the town of Hawara in the occupied West Bank after the shooting of two Israeli settlers, two brothers, by Palestinian gunmen earlier on Sunday. So, the footage is of charred out cars and homes, and then you've got this video, which has been shared widely on social media, of a group of Israeli settlers praying, standing in front of a burning building. So, there's a lot of calls for revenge going on. How does it strike you? Is this yeah. Could this thing spiral into worse violence?
2: Oh, I think it can absolutely spiral into even worse than what we've seen, which is already worse than what we've seen over the past several weeks. Uh, and, you know, 2022 was already the most, one of the deadliest years um, in the past, you know, decade and a half. Uh, in the West Bank, and in and, and 2023 is, has been even deadlier for Palestinians. And uh, this, uh, you know, we, we were accustomed to seeing uh, extremist Israeli settlers sort of rampage through Palestinian olive groves, burning down trees and burning houses occasionally, cars, uh, but we haven't seen anything uh, on this scale, uh, like what we saw in Huwara yesterday, which is really frightening because in, in not only because of the damage they can do. And I think one Palestinian was actually shot to death by uh, by this uh, mob uh, of, of settlers, uh, but also because they are the settlers operate more or less with the. Um, Uh, consent and with the logistical support often of the Israeli army. Uh, Very few Israeli, you know, we've seen a huge uptick in attacks by Israelis on Palestinians uh, and their properties over the past several years. Uh, Every year is worse than the year before. We've seen that pattern now for six or seven years in a row. This year will probably be the worst in a very long time. But typically The Israeli army um, may arrest a few individuals here and there, but very few of them are prosecuted uh, and very few of those who are prosecuted ever uh, face any real consequences like jail. Um, That's a very different reality than what we see uh, with regard to Palestinians who attack Israeli settlers. You know, there is an ongoing manhunt for the shooter who killed the two Israeli settlers, uh, um, I guess, in the last day or two. Um, uh, But, you know, most of those who were arrested, of the hundreds of people who who, uh, participated in what can only be described as a pogrom, uh, only a handful are arrested and most have been released. Um, even though they are, there's plenty of video evidence, much of it's self-recorded by individuals who were participating uh, in, the, uh, in the attack. So there's a pattern of impunity for Israeli settler terrorism that is very different from the kinds of treatment that Palestinians get for attacks on Israelis.
0: Well, there are 700,000 Israeli settlers living on the West Bank and in East Jerusalem, And the numbers grow all the time. And this is a very pro-settler government now, the most right-wing government that Israel's ever had. It's led by, of course, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who said on Sunday, or at least he tweeted out on Sunday, it's a terrible tragedy occurred today. I ask even when the blood is boiling not to take the law into one's hands. But then on the settler side... Their representatives in the Knesset, the ultra-nationalist Jewish power party, saying they look favorably on what happened in Hawara. And their minister in charge of the West Bank, Finance Minister Smotrich, because there were calls at the Sunday meeting in Aqaba between Israeli officials and Jordanian government officials hosting a talk aimed at reducing tensions ahead of the month of Ramadan coming up, In response to that, where the Israeli officials said that they would cease discussion on any new settlements in the next four months and stop the authorization of any outposts for six months, immediately Smotrich, who oversees Israel's West Bank policy, he said, one thing I know, there will not be a freeze on the building and development of settlements even for one day. So this is the same guy, by the way, Smotrich, who said of the... Rampages on the West Bank," he said. Uh, "That he called on Israel to strike back without mercy for the killing of the two yeah. brothers. So, I mean, this right. is the reality, isn't it? That, I mean, how can you not dissociate the fact that you have a far right government with settlers having veto power over Netanyahu, and not end up with incidents like the one that we're talking about?
2: Yeah, it it, it it's it's almost impossible to separate, uh, and and it probably is impossible. Um, And and I would say it's not just that we have settlers or pro-settler elements inside the Israeli government. That's been true for a very long time. Uh, Frankly, we've had pro-settlement governments uh, on the left and the center and the right. Uh, But but as you said, this government is, is different in that it is the most extreme of any government that we've seen, which is actually saying a lot because we've seen successive Israeli governments move more and more to the right. Um, and it's it's hard to imagine any government more to the right than this. And what's different is that it includes the elements that you just mentioned, Bazalel Smotrich of the religious Zionist uh, bloc, and also Itamar Ben-Gvir of the Jewish Power Party, which is an offshoot of a Jewish supremacist group uh, founded by Mayer Kahana, which uh, is designated or has in the past been designated even by the Israeli government as a, as a terrorist group um, and, and has that designation also uh, by the U.S. government. And so this is a very different kind of government than, you know, this, this is a different level of extremism than, than what we've seen someone like Ben Gvir, who has himself been convicted in an Israeli court of racist incitement and support for terrorism. He is the national security minister in this new government. Uh, And he is what I think a lot of Israeli analysts would call a pyromaniac. Uh, You know, he likes to throw uh, sort of figurative firebombs, but but, uh, how we're seeing that Play out on the ground is that his, his followers, the people who share the same ideology and kind of violent commitment to permanent, exclusive Jewish control over the land and over Palestinian lives, um, now that's translated from the figurative into the literal. We, we saw uh, an entire village uh, uh, practically being uh, burned. I think dozens of Palestinians have been burned out of their homes, uh, at least a dozen of dozens of households. So this is a qualitative and quantitative shift in the kind of extremism that we have seen in Israeli governments in that there's now a convergence between extremist violent settlers on the ground and extremist ministers in the government. And so Yes, Netanyahu, for PR purposes, for Western consumption, um, participated in the summit. There was an agreement reached that both sides would take these de-escalatory steps. And then almost as soon as he came back, uh, it was disavowed by various ministers in his government. And even to a certain extent by Netanyahu himself, he has said that there will be no freeze. There is no settlement freeze. So we're seeing um, uh, a kind of a really very brazen uh, approach in large part because Israeli governments have never really faced any consequences for uh, violations of signed agreements or violations of Palestinian rights. And I think what we're seeing today is the culmination of decades of impunity uh, and, and a kind of triumphalism. Uh, that says, you know, we won and we can do whatever we want because we know that there will be a lot of uh, hand-wrenching, um, but but not much else. There will be condemnations in Western capitals, but not much else. Uh, and and I think that's what has gotten us to this point. And that's where the danger is that there's there is no constraint on uh, on Israeli behavior at the moment.
0: Just in the last couple of minutes then, Khaled El-Gindi, is there any political constraint on Netanyahu? We've seen hundreds of thousands of Israelis demonstrating against Netanyahu's move to take control of the Supreme Court and weaken its independence. Obviously, he has a dog in the fight because he's
2: uh,
0: looking at charges in prison himself. So it's pretty outrageous what he's doing. But what are the chances of Israeli citizens being able to control this government or at least stop its more anti-democratic plans?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a very... Uh, it, it is probably the single greatest threat to uh, Israeli governance that we've seen since the founding of the state in 1948. Uh, I think whether uh, a country that rules over millions of people uh, who are stateless and who do not have basic citizenship rights of, of any kind, and have been ruled as a kind of subject population. I think it's questionable whether we can refer to that as a as a democracy. But but even within the narrow confines of of Israel's limited democracy uh, to its own citizens and especially to Jewish citizens. Uh, this is highly problematic, what, what Netanyahu and his coalition are trying to do. They're basically trying to overturn the the judicial branch, um, to override the authority that you, the judicial branch has uh, in, in kind of uh, uh, keeping uh, the executive or the parliament in check. Uh, you know, in most democracies, we're used to the judiciary as being a an equal, a co-equal branch of government. Um, The problem in Israel is that you don't have, Israel doesn't have a constitution. Uh, And so one of the measures that is being pursued is to simply uh, allow the parliament to override with a simple majority uh, of 61 votes, uh, any ruling that the high court or the courts make. That's extremely problematic from a rule of law and a a democratic standpoint. So that's where there is a, uh, that's where what has allowed or sort of compelled hundreds of thousands of Israelis to go into the streets. The Palestinian issue is not really driving those protests. It's really this direct threat to, to Israeli institutions like the judiciary. Um, But it might uh, be the only hope that there is to to impose any kind of checks on this government. But as it stands, uh, Netanyahu has the votes. He has his majority of 64. He only needs 61 votes to pass any piece of legislation, including legislation that would short circuit the judiciary. And there's no constitutional safety net, really. Um, and that's what's Put people out in, in, into the streets. Is that enough? Is it enough to put people in the streets in large numbers to to, to keep that from happening? I have my doubts, um, but it may take something that severe to sort of wake up the rest of Israeli society to the much bigger threat um, uh, that, that we've seen over the past several decades. Uh, and that includes the fact that Israel is, is ruling over a subject population who have no rights. And it was really only a matter of time before that illiberal authoritarian trend kind of seeped into other aspects of Israeli governance. Uh, And that's what we're seeing now.
0: Well, Khaled El-Gindi, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Khaled el who's a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute, where he heads the program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli affairs. And he previously served as an advisor to the Palestinian leadership on permanent status negotiations with Israel from 2004 to 2009, and was a key participant in the Annapolis negotiations launched in November of 2007. And his latest book is Blind Spot: America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from the UK is Patrick Allen, who's the founder and chair of the Progressive Economic Forum in the UK. Thanks for joining us, Patrick.
3: Thank you. So
0: are we to assume now that maybe the Brexit agony might be over, at least in part because of an apparent agreement between Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the head of the EU, Ursula von der Leyen, over the Northern Ireland trade issues?
3: No, I wouldn't say the agony is over. I would just say it's a step in the right direction. Um, Brexit is still an extremely disadvantageous arrangement for the UK, but not having uh, uh, an agreed solution to the Northern Ireland protocol was making everything much worse. So the the protocol uh, was the arrangement agreed by... Boris Johnson as part of the exit deal uh, and it was essential because um, by exiting uh, the European Union, the UK wanted to have different regulatory arrangements. It wanted to diverge from European standards and if you're going to do that, you need to have a border. The trouble is that uh, that Northern Ireland is part of the UK uh, uh, and uh, uh, that that produces an intractable problem where do you place the border uh, the options were to place the border uh, on the land but that was extremely unattractive because that border has been the source of a great deal of tension and terrorist activities which would probably resume if the if the border was reimposed so the other option was to have the border down the irish sea which uh meant that the UK was actually imposing a, a border within its own territory, which seems to be rather peculiar. But I mean, that was the option that Boris Johnson adopted. Uh, the other option, of course, was to have no border and uh, agree that there would be no regulatory divergence, which, w- of course, would be the soft Brexit, which would have been a, a much more attractive uh, thing to do. But the hard Brexiteers were very much against having uh, regulatory uh, agreement. They wanted to diverge, and that meant things like cutting workers' benefits and uh, uh, they uh, red tape, which they thought would make the um, UK more competitive and, and make make more money for the economy. So that was their thinking. So uh, there had to be a border, but of course uh, the border was a problem. And Boris Johnson, having signed the the thing immediately declared that there would be no border and that uh, there would be no restrictions and uh, effectively uh, implying that he would renege on his entire the agreement which he had just signed Uh, and that's where we've been since since that moment we've had a row with the eu about how to operate the the protocol which defines the border because obviously uh, some politicians in northern Ireland didn't want to have any border because they wanted to have the same arrangements uh, with the rest of the UK and found it peculiar that there would have to be checks on goods passing from one part of the UK to the other. For example, you can't really send uh, some plants from Cambridge to Belfast without encountering a lot of problems. So they didn't like that. But of course, that's, that's, that's the central nature of uh, having a, a border within your own country if you want to have this regulatory divergence. So th- this seemed to be int- intractable. And as long as Boris Johnson was prime minister, it was never going to be sold. Uh, and he quite liked the idea of having tension with the EU because uh, he thought that was politically useful and that he could blame the EU for being so petty as to impose uh, checks on sausages and things like that, uh, which seemed to go down with some voters, uh, but of course denying the essential nature of the uh, agreement. So with Boris Johnson out of the way, uh, there were uh, now uh, new options, uh, and um, it was Richie Sunak's uh, job to see whether he could actually uh, bring some peace to the arrangements and actually make the protocol work. And that's what everybody wanted, apart from the hard Brexiteers, who, uh, uh, for example, they, well, they didn't want to have any, uh, 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 any checks, which, of course, was nonsensical. And also they didn't want to have uh, any role for the European Court of Justice, in resolving trade disputes. But that was a red line for the EU because the European Court of Justice is the essential arbiter for all EU law, and EU law currently applies to Northern Ireland, so they were never going to give way on that. So anyway, after a lot of of talks, they appear to have come to some arrangement whereby the protocol will be slightly eased, and that involves things like red and green lanes, so that uh, goods which are destined only to res- remain in Northern Ireland won't uh, will go through a green lane and won't be subject to a lot of checks, whereas goods which will go uh, uh, are intended to go through to Southern Ireland will go through the red lane and have more checks. So hopefully this will bring some peace uh, and that the arrangements will work more smoothly, and uh, uh, this will help in our relations with the EU, which until now have been very poor because they obviously didn't like the idea that we were tearing up an agreement which we'd just signed. So that was catastrophic for uh, our diplomacy and for arranging anything with the EU. Uh, So it looks as though there is now an agreement which satisfies the EU and uh, the UK government. It's still subject to potential ratification by Parliament, which has been promised by Sunak, And then that, that means that it's possible that hard Brexiteers will try to defeat it. But I don't think they've gotten the numbers to do it. And anyway, SUNAC has been promised uh, votes by the Labour Party to pass the necessary legislation if it's needed, although I don't think it needs any legislation. But anyway, if there's a vote, Labour will say they'll back it. Of course, that would be very embarrassing to SUNAC to have to rely on the Labour Party to, to get it through Parliament. Uh, but uh, that that is uh, what may happen. But I suspect that the, the rebel numbers will fade away now and, and they won't be able to defeat it. So it means that there's partial peace. But, of course, all it does, it makes a very unsatisfactory arrangement, which is having a border within your own country, work a bit better. It doesn't solve all the other fundamental problems of Brexit. So we're still saddled with uh, uh, Brexit itself, which is causing a lot of damage to the UK economy. So, no, it's not the end of the agony.
0: And when you say that, effectively, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson is, is out of the way, he's still there in Parliament, isn't he? I mean, he's, he he's is still after an MP, all,
3: yeah. uh, and uh, he's still very keen to become Prime Minister again, by all accounts. Uh, and uh, he's using this issue to cause trouble for Sunak. Um, of course, you know, the whole thing is totally inconsistent, but... Um, uh, you know, it was it was his arrangement, which uh, he's now uh, trying to scrap. So it's the the very protocol that he put in. He's now saying is unsatisfactory. So of course, it, none of it makes any sense. But in political terms, uh, he he is there to try to cause trouble for Sunak, and if he could undermine Sunak to the extent that Sunak lost a vote in Parliament, possibly that gives Boris Johnson a way back into Downing Street. Uh, but I personally think that's extremely unlikely. At the moment, yes, he's, he's circling around, causing trouble and, and geeing up hard Brexiteers to oppose the arrangement.
0: Which <laughs> his fingerprints are on, and he, after all, is one of the architects of Brexit, is he not? Yeah,
3: he's the architect of it. it was The whole thing was a nonsense. I mean, it, it, uh, they never gave any credence to the problems of Ireland, you see. This was the arrogance of, of of hard brexiteers and johnson in particular the fact is that this this is a, is a problem which just can't be resolved you know that because uh, northern ireland is part of the uk and part of the island of ireland um if you have regulatory divergence, you have to have a border you know where is the border you have to have a border so the answer is is to not have regulatory divergence but the brexiteers no, wouldn't agree with that because they think the only point of brexit is to cut ourselves off from EU regulations and have different ones. But they then understand that the regulations is actually really quite sensible. It's just a way of agreeing how to trade with another country. Whenever you want to trade with somebody, you have to agree to some some terms. And those terms are, of course, the regulations. And the the single market, which was um, a huge feature of the European Union, which we have now left, was an amazing construct whereby 27 countries agreed a common set of regulations so that they could trade with each other with minimum restrictions and effectively no border. Uh, And uh, under Margaret Thatcher, we helped to construct the single market, and we had a huge benefit from it. Now we've left it, uh, we've got all sorts of trouble, which is a daily occurrence at the moment. For example, uh, as we speak, you can't buy tomatoes very easily in the UK because there aren't any. And the reason there aren't any is partly the weather, but partly Brexit. So um, as a result of Brexit, we are not supporting growers in the south of England with high energy costs, uh, which means they can't be bothered to grow cucumbers and tomatoes. Whereas in the EU, uh, they, they do have some shortages, but they're able to source tomatoes from any one of the 27 countries. Uh, and so the no, they, they have, prices have gone up a bit, but but they have no shortage, whereas we are having a great deal of trouble um, importing tomatoes because of the red tape that we've imposed upon ourselves by um, leaving the single market. And also because the UK government has chosen not to support the energy costs of growers in the south of England. Uh, of course, their energy costs have gone up a great deal due to the Ukraine war and gas prices whereas the EU, they are supporting their growers. So our growers have given up growing temporarily, and so we, uh, we don't, we're not growing enough of our own tomatoes and cucumbers. But this is just another example of how the basics of Brexit are interfering with daily life in the UK.
0: But obviously it's much deeper, the problems, than tomatoes and cucumbers, right? It's a, it, there's been a political and economic paralysis of the UK since the Brexit vote, to leave, and uh, it's been probably the biggest self-inflicted political wound in modern history in, in many ways. I mean, how, how would you rate it? Is it as bad as I'm uh, suggesting? I, I
3: would agree with exactly what you said. Since 2016, when the referendum vote uh, was announced, there's been a paralysis in the UK business community, which doesn't, didn't really know uh, with any certainty what it was facing, and therefore investment has fallen right off. So foreign companies who were investing in the UK because we were part of the single market and gave them access to Europe have held back or moved their operations. UK companies have not invested. So without investment, um, uh, we haven't been keeping up uh, with you know productivity gains that come from investment. And so uh, our uh, our employment has suffered, our productivity has suffered. At the same time, uh, we've had armies and armies of the br- brightest civil servants in the country all uh, working on Brexit arrangements uh, to try to make sense of it, which, of course, just to many of us seems a complete waste of time when we've got so many other problems to deal with, you know, problems of the world, you know, climate change and um, everything else to tackle. And we're we'd just... Um, <laughs> As you say, it's a self-inflicted damage where we, we, for the first time in history, I think a trading nation has decided to impose restrictions on itself uh, and make it more difficult to trade with with its biggest trading partner, which is the EU, which accounts for nearly 50% of our trade. So, um, yes, it's it's a, a catastrophe.
0: But has, has the uh, British public figured it out? I mean, we, here in the United States, there's still a good percentage of Americans, maybe up to a third, who haven't figured out what a disaster Donald Trump has been for the country. So how would you compare that to the UK? Is there, is there any kind of a learning curve? It's pretty obvious, no,
3: isn't it? Obviously, it's learning by experience. Well, You have to remember, for a start, that the vote was very close, and that 48% of the people... And the referendum never wanted it anyway, so they didn't need a learning curve. They they valued the they valued the membership of, of the EU. So the learning needs to be done by the other 52%. Um, and uh, there are some people who will never be um, uh, anything other than hard Brexiteers, obviously. And, uh, and that's either because they don't really understand the dynamics of trade, or because they're economically inactive, or they're wealthy, so it doesn't affect them. Um, but anyone who's actually involved in the economy um, uh, or in business has seen how uh, how how difficult it is. I mean, I, I can't think of a single in- interest group that hasn't suffered due to Brexit. If you, if you take that young people, they can't uh, study uh, abroad or work easily abroad. Uh, you know, one of my daughter's friends is a chef and she wants to take a job in Amsterdam. At the moment, she can't get there because she can't get the right visa. Uh, I wanted to send a birthday present to my brothers yesterday, who lives in Italy, and Amazon just wouldn't accept the order without uh, a whole lot of um, numbers which I couldn't supply, so I, I gave up. Um, you know, businesses, they can't uh, sell their goods uh, to Europe anymore. Many of them have given up. Uh, fishermen, who thought that uh, it was the EU causing all their damage, they've lost a lot of their trade. You know, universities uh, have uh, found it more difficult to recruit uh, foreign students. Uh, We haven't got the labour that we need. Uh, You know, our hospitality industry, our care industry, our health service relied hugely on, on freedom of movement to supply uh, workers that we were short of. Uh, Our agriculture. Uh, you know, the picking of fruit, all of that has suffered. I can't think of a single area of the economy which has benefited from Brexit. It's all downhill. Uh, Brexit is, oh, it takes time, you know. It's uh, like the French Revolution. It's too early to say. But, um, you know, how long does it take? Uh, It's quite clear that uh, the the damage to the economy has been profound. And um, uh, and opinion polls at the moment suggest that, that, that those who think it, it was a mistake and that we should rejoin uh, in, the, in the late 60s. You know, I'm talking about 65%, 66%. And I think that's that, well, that will only continue. Uh, you know, it'll get up to the 70%. And then at that point, the fact the politicians will wake up. You see, the problem is that Labour is trying to be terribly cautious about this. It doesn't want to suggest that we should rejoin the EU at the moment because it is terrified that uh, the votes it needs in certain constituencies who are hard Brexit, will, um, will they won't be able to attract them. Uh, and so they don't want to say anything at the moment. But at a certain point, I think the rising will be so plainly on the wall that the politicians are about to say, we've got to do something. I mean, Labour is already committed to um, a, a much closer relationship with the EU if they get back into power. And I think it'll just be a series of steps, you know, tiny steps at first, but then bigger steps. So the first thing is to um, uh, move towards rejoining the single market and the customs union. That will make a huge difference. Uh, And then at a certain point, um, people will say, well, why why don't we rejoin the EU? Because uh, if we do that, we'll have some say in the regulations, which of course would be sensible. But then of course the EU doesn't, doesn't want to open uh, a whole can of worms. You know, it, the whole thing has been so traumatic for them but, uh, dealing with the uh, e, with the UK and the fact that uh, we were such uh, untrustworthy negotiating partners and that we've gone back on our word. They they don't want any more trouble. So the last thing they want is to is for us to rejoin for yet another um, hard Brexit faction to win win an election and take us out again. You know, they don't want us to go in and out, in and out. So they need to see that it is complete settled will of the UK electorate and all the U, all the political parties that rejoining the EU uh, uh, is what we want. So then that, it's going to take ten years, I think. But you know we can achieve a lot in the short term by just um, getting closer and just you know re rejoining the single market and the customs union would take away all these trade frictions. And it would probably involve freedom of movement, which, frankly, is a good idea because we, we need workers. Um, we are very, very short of key workers. And uh, those workers uh, are more easily sourced from a union of 27 countries than they are if you're just on your own, uh, handing out uh, job visas uh, under great restrictions. So it all makes sense. I mean, the Brexit was a delusion. It was a post-imperial, post-colonial delusion of people who thought that, you know, we could uh, a bit like uh, maybe make America great again. Idea that we could become the nation that we once were when we ruled half the world and everybody did what we told them. That's they—they they thought that was something that would be, could be recreated. There's an awful lot of of um, of people like uh, Trump and Putin and brexiteers who want to recreate the world as it once was and of course it doesn't really work and, and there is definitely a, a big bad syndrome of you know post-imperial delusion as countries trying to get used to um, where they are now as opposed to where they were
0: well i thank you very much for joining us here today patrick allen thank you And again, I've been speaking with Patrick Allen, who is the founder and chair of the Progressive Economic Forum in the UK. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon, and this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.